Welcome. This is a formal welcome to Torah Studies, our weekly exploration of the Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is Emar. Torah portion is Emar, and um, just, just a side note, I'm going to mute everybody, just have a nice clean background. At any point, you can unmute yourself to jump into the conversation. So Parsha this week is Emar, and all puns intended, work with me here, all puns intended, there's a lot to speak about with this week's Parsha. Right, Emar means speak. So there you go. There's a lot to talk about with this week's Torah portion. I see you all rolling your eyes, and that's okay. That's why, that's why I'm here. I'm here to provide the, um, the eye rolls. So the Torah portion speaks about many things. The first, really the first half or two-thirds of the portion talks about various rules and regulations that pertain to the Kohen, to the, to the priest. The high priest, the regular priest, um, specific regulations about where they can go and what they can do and who they can marry and what sh- they should eat. Just the protocols of being a Kohen. Hey, it's, uh, it's not easy to be a Kohen. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff that has to happen. Hey, Mom, good to see you. Welcome. All right, so that's the first, I would say, a little more than a half of the, of the Torah portion. And then the parsha jumps into a conversation about the Jewish holidays. It talks about... Passover. It talks about the counting of the Omer. It talks about Shavuot. It talks about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot and Shemini Yatzeret. Talks about all the major, well, all the biblical holidays, which makes sense because it is the Bible. So it talks about the holidays. But in the preamble to the holidays, the Torah reminds us once again of our weekly holiday, and what am I referring to? Unmute yourself and jump in. What is our weekly holiday called? Shabbos, exactly. Weekly holiday is Shabbos, a.k.a. Shabbat, a.k.a. the Sabbath, whatever you call it, it's the same thing. The day, oh, what is Shabbat? The day of? Rest. Rest. Good. The day of rest. Hence my unofficial title for tonight's class, the rest of the story, because tonight we are going to take a mystical, based on Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, we're going to take a deep look into what exactly Shabbat, Shabbos, really is all about. What is at the heart and soul of this day of rest? What is rest all about? Um, And what does it do? What does it mean for us? I want to begin by asking a number of questions. Okay, we're going to ask a number of questions, and in the process, the goal is <coughs> that we come away with a, um, a bit of deeper understanding on what Shabbat really is. So question number one, okay, this is, again, you can unmute yourself already, you can get ready to unmute, this is meant to be a dialogue. Question number one is, why do we rest on Shabbat? What is the rationale for why we rest on Shabbat? Jump in. Anybody? Hashem rested on the seventh day. Good, because God rested on the seventh day when God, as the Torah tells us, God created the world in six days, and God rested on the seventh day. Well, let me ask you the following question. Does that make sense? Does that make sense that God rested on the seventh day? What is the nature What is the nature of divine rest? Right? If God, if we, the God that we believe in is all powerful and almighty and all, you know, all capable, 
So what does it mean that God is resting? What, God got tired, fatigued? What does that actually mean? In other words, in other words, if you think about it, say it again. He took a break from creation. All right. So I guess my question would be, so what's with the break? Yeah. I mean, I understand when it comes to you and I, you know, human beings of flesh and blood, we get tired. So we work, 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 work. And at some point we need to take a rest. We need to take a breather and step away from the work. That makes a lot of sense. But when it comes to God, right? God can create like, uh, like only God can in a very easy fashion without expending energy. So what is the meaning of this idea that God rested, God took a day off? Again, you want to tell me it only took six days to create? That's fabulous. So have a six-day week. We'll call it a day. What is this business of, well, God created in six days and then he took a whole day of rest. What does it mean that God rested? Before you tell me that, well, maybe God rested so that we would have a day, we would remember to take a day off so that we don't overexert ourselves, that's wonderful. But I'm asking a question about God. Why is God resting? Are you with me on this? Yes, sir. Does it have something to do with God and his thought rather than God and his speech? On, on it could be. We're not going to go with that angle tonight, but elaborate, elaborate a little bit. How to elaborate? Well, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. All right. Well, listen. You said it, and now we'll think about it, right? Thought and speech, right? So, so perhaps you're saying that God created six days through speech and the seventh day through thought. So it's not really not creating, it's not really resting, it's just creating in a different fashion. I hear you, I'm with you. Um, and we are going to get mystical tonight, although we're going to go in a bit of a different direction. But again, I, I, I want to reiterate my question. If we're talking about God, here's the deal. How long does it take to create? You want to tell me six days? Great. End it. Right? What's this deal of resting on the seventh day? If nothing is being created... Right? Then just end it when you're done. Six days and we're done. Six days of creation. That's it. Finished. No. God took a whole day for rest. God needs a vacation. God needs a breather. God needs a beer. What, what, what are we talking about here? Doesn't make sense. Again, if you think of God in human terms, if you want to anthropomorphize God, if you want to make God into uh, a bigger version of a human being, it makes sense. But that's not what we believe in. We believe in a God that's perfect, that's all-knowing, that's all-capable, that's all-doing. And what's the language? Indefatigable? In, did I say that right? Yes? Did I? Possibly? Indefatigable. In the, all right. Gesundheit. I'm kidding. Right. That, that, that word that my mom just said. Yes. Exactly. As you pronounce it, as you pronounced it, so will you pronounce Here's the point. God is that. God does not get tired. So what's the rest? That's only one question of many questions that I have right here at the opening, even before we get into any of the text. Question number two. So, all right, let's leave that aside. For some reason, God rested. We don't know yet why. What does that mean? Sounds bizarre to me. But either way, God does rest. And so he gives us the Sabbath. Shabbat. Shabbos. He says, you know what, you guys, all y'all, you should rest too. I it's like a it's like a commercial, a celebrity endorsement. It's like I rested, so should you. I I love this day of rest, 
and you can try it also. Great, so we're resting. Have you seen the Shabbos schedule, especially at synagogue? You gotta go to a service at night. You gotta go to a service at day. You have to eat meals. You have to pound food. You don't have to, but you do anyway, even if you don't have to. There are meals, there are three meals. Are you kidding me? Each meal has three or four um, courses. Let's talk about Shabbos food for a second because everyone likes talking about food, I think, right? Shabbos food. You start off Friday night with a Kiddush. And again, depends on the tradition. I'm just telling you the tradition that I know is you have a cup, at least three and a half ounces plus. You got to drink Rove Coast, which is the majority of the cup of, of, of the contents of the wine or grape juice. So you got to like basically, you ever see people drink wine, like people that are real wine drinkers drink wine? They take a little sip. Right? They would be horrified. One second. Riva, come in. Join the party. They would be horrified to see Kiddush. You take wine, you pour, you guzzle it. Who guzzles? No swirling. No sniffing. No uh, pomp and circumstance. You're just drinking it. Who does that? Barbarians. The wines were squeezed for naught, is what they're saying. Back to our story. You start off by guzzling some wine. And then you march everyone into the other room to wash their hands. Mazel tov. Right? Now everyone's washing their hands. No one knows why. Then they're, well, we know why, but nonetheless. Then you come back in, and now there's challah. So whether you're gluten-free, whether you're not gluten-free, the, gluten's the, the, the gluten-free or gluten-full. Oh, Reva, say hi. There you go. Um, Reva, do you like challah? Mm-hmm. Do you like wine or do you like grape juice? You don't like grape juice? Do you like the regular or the sparkling? I like both. You like both, but which is your favorite? Mm-hmm. The non-sparkling. The non-sparkling? All right. That's a threw me for a loop. Okay, so here's the deal. Then you have the challah. Yeah, then you're breaking bread. And the challah is usually pretty good. I mean, you know, depending on where you're getting it from. And then you're like, oh, all right, I'm going to have another one. And then you have like... Many, many families and, and Travis tables have dips. You have like dips. You have like a, a baba ganoush. You want to get some Middle Eastern flair. You want to get like an olive dip. You want to get a sauteed eggplant situation. Whatever. Then you have salads and gefilte fish and, and multiple salads. And then, all right, that's one course. Now that's a whole meal. Like in normal circumstances, that is a meal. But wait. There's more. Then out comes the chicken soup. And chicken soup is not just chicken soup. You got chicken soup, you got the broth. Plus you have the vegetables and the matzo ball and a spoon, but you don't need the spoon. You need the spoon to eat. But there's a lot in the bowl. And then you're done, you're like, all right, I think we're done. We're not done because the main course has not come out yet. Now you have the main course. You got a chicken, a salmon, a brisket, whatever it is with a kugel and, uh, and a vegetable or multiple vegetables on the side. And people leave out the salads just in case you want to pick more salads, you just want to enjoy more salads as the meal goes on. And you're thinking, are you kidding me? I can't, I can't even do this anymore. Like, I can't. Like, this is not, it's not, you're too tired and just too stuffed. It's like, I can't, can't do this. But wait, there's dessert. Don't forget about dessert. The Talmud says, by the way, that no matter how much you've eaten, there's always room for dessert, something sweet. There's always room. And you realize, you know what? That looks pretty good. I'll have some dessert. Meanwhile, here's my question. You call this rest? I call this work. Day of rest? Are you kidding me? And then you do it again Shabbos day. And you do it again late Shabbos afternoon toward evening. 
You have three meals, three meals. Now, of course, not all the meals are maybe as elaborate, nonetheless. And then you go to synagogue two or three times and you study Torah and there's all, you, you, you know, in, in, in good times you host people or you go over to other people's houses. It's a whole situation. Sorry? Shabbos party for the kids. Shabbos party for the kids. I'm a Shabbos for the kids. You get all this stuff going on. Meanwhile, at the end of it, you're like, this was a vacation. This was a day of rest. Are you kidding me? This was not a day of rest. So my question here is, when you do Shabbos, with all the details, you soon realize that there's not much rest involved. So what do we mean that it's a day of rest? That's question number two. Let me recap. Question one is, why does God need to rest? Question two is, what kind of rest is this anyway? Question number three. Question number three is, um, some of you may be familiar with the song, Shabbos, Shabbos Yom Menucha, or Shabbat, Shabbat Yom Menucha, Shabbat, Shabbat, Shabbat Kodesh. All right, we call Shabbat a Yom Menucha, day of rest, and we also call it Shabbat Kodesh, which means a holy Shabbat. Shabbat is both a day of rest and it is holy. And what that means, one sec, and what that means, you want this? There you go. And what that means is, oh, catch you drinking seltzer. And what that means, you never heard that ditty in your life? All right. Shabbat, Shabbat, Yom Menucha, Shabbat, Shabbat, Kodesh. What that means is Shabbat is not just a day of rest, but it's also a holy day. And now I need to ask a question. Think about a vacation that you've had. Yeah, think about a vacation. You were working and you went on vacation and you had some R&R, rest and relaxation. Would you call that experience holy? Would you call it holy? I don't know if it's holy. It's a vacation. Since when is it holy? Now, if we were in England, oh, we would call it a holiday, a holy day, because we're all official. Um, yes, formal. One second. You know what holy means? Okay. All right. Hold that thought. All right. So here's the deal. So here's, here's the question. A vacation does not equal holiness. So it's a day of rest. Why is it holy? What makes Shabbat holy? You want to tell me that God rested, for what, which we don't understand. God rested from work. So we're going to rest from work, although we're doing other things. We got a full schedule, so not much rest. But you want to call it rest, okay. But then what makes it holy? Because... God rested and you're resting from work? Since when does absence of work equal holiness? Do you understand my question? Does that question make sense? Absence of work, yeah? Think about, you know, a vacation. Is it holy necessarily? No. So why is Shabbos, why is Shabbat holy? What is, what is behind the holiness? What does it mean? And finally, the last question is, what is my last question? The last question is... So, no, so again, really there's two questions there. Number one, what is the connection between rest and holiness? And the final question, which I kind of snuck in there is, what makes Shabbat holy in the first place? What, what constitutes its holiness? I want to share my screen with you because I want to get into the Torah studies texts. We got to read some texts and... We're going to look at this, uh, this conversation together. Okay, give me a moment. 
Let me pull this up on my screen. By the way, if anybody wants the book, it is available on Amazon. Conveniently, you can get it shipped straight to your house. See, you don't even need me, me anymore to order books or whatever. You just order it straight from Amazon. If you need the link, reach out, let me know. I'll send it over to you. Okay, here we go. The, the, the screen is officially shared. Um, Dr. Maxi, please jump in. Text number one. Take it away. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, for on it he rested from all his work. So this, thank you, this answers the question, when and how and where did Shabbat, did the Sabbath become holy? So here, well, here's the answer, right? It says that God... It says that God, oh, wait, hold on. Why is this not working out for me? Yeah, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That word sanctified, it means God made it holy. Now, what's the rationale? I asked before, like, why is it holy? How is it holy? What, for on it, he rested from all his work. Well, that doesn't make sense. Because he rested, right? For he rested. Because he rested, therefore he sanctified it. What does one have to do with the other? Yeah, people go on vacation all the time. They don't call it a hallowed day. It's like, oh, a holy vacation to the Bahamas. It's not holy. It's a vacation. It's a rest. What's going on over here? So again, text one is part of, uh, is, is a source text from Genesis 2-3, right at the beginning of the Torah, that really evokes this question. What is the meaning of sanctification? Because he rested. What's the connection? All right, now I want to ask a fifth question, right? This is kind of like Passover. Got the four questions, but... I got another one. This is like the Eli Elijah's question. Not really at all, but, but stay with me. This is text number two. Adina Malka, please read this one. And this is going to really, really get the wheels turning on some questions. Take it away. What was the world lacking? Rest. Along came Shabbos, along came rest. With this, the work of creation was completed. And now we are completely... Befuddled. I don't know. We, I am completely confused. Look, this is Rashi. This is Rashi's commentary, the great biblical commentary, Rashi, on Genesis, Bereshit 2 2. But he's quoting from the Talmud. And the Talmud says, Rashi quotes it right here. He says, After six days of creation, there was something missing. What was the world lacking? What was missing? Menucha, rest. So, Ba Shabbos, Ba Menucha, came Shabbat. Along came rest. And now the work of creation was completed. Do you understand how bizarre this is? You're telling me that God is creating, creating, creating actively for six days, but it's not complete. And then God stops, and now it is complete? Does that make any sense? No. Yeah, Rabbi? Thank you for saying no, Riva. Your team question. Good. Again, hold on one second. Let me read it to read it to question, Yaakov, before you jump in. So again, here's the question. God is creating, creating, creating for six days. And a whole world, the whole universe is created. And the Talmud says, Rashi quotes it here, not yet done. The world is missing something. What's it missing? It's missing menucha, it's missing rest. Oh, and that's what God creates on the seventh day. What does it mean creates rest? How do you create through absence? Right. A God is actively doing and it's incomplete. So God stops doing and now it's complete. Something, we're missing something here. Yaakov, jump in. All right. So I, 
think I think Reva is wrong. I know that she's like a Repinson in training, but I'm gonna take a chance here with this. So um, God may be able to handle constant activity without a pause, and uh, and then I guess the way he set it up, he she it set it up that the way creation uh, happened was the way. Uh, it's going to continue to evolve. So um, I guess he, he, she, it realized that um, we can't go without uh, pause, or else we would burn out. So uh, he gave us a uh, this kind of this cycle, and the cycle allows us to be part of maybe what it's like in heaven, where or the angels, where there's not movement, you know, there's not much growth, there's not much movement, but there's lots of rest. And here, there's a lot of movement, but no rest. So maybe he said, well, maybe have it a little bit more like heaven. I, I like what you're saying. I like what you're saying. So what you're saying is that he saw that, that humans, that people were missing this notion of being able to give themselves a break. So he wanted to implant, inject that within the psyche of humanity, this notion of it's okay or it's necessary even to take a break. I, I like that answer. But if we, get re if we really want to get technical... Again, it doesn't answer the questions that we asked, including this one. It doesn't answer the question why God rested. So you want to tell me that God wants us to rest? That's great. So let God tell us, hey, guys, you probably need to take a break. That's one thing. Now, you want to tell me that God needed to model it? Yeah, but then it's, uh, but, but then it's not really modeling. It's faking because God doesn't actually need the rest. So then God is faking so that we should learn a lesson from fakery, from trickery. So all we're learning is basically do as I say, not as I do, but as I pretend, which I don't know. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not really an effective way of doing things. That's, again, I told you I'm getting a little bit, a bit technical because I like your answer, but I just want to demonstrate that it really, it's really doesn't get us 100% of the way there. But even with regard to us, if you look at what Rashi said, he's, Rashi says that God saw the world was missing rest. And what, we're, what, you're, what you're suggesting is that people needed to rest. And my question is, right, does the world need rest or do human beings need rest? That's my question, right? It says, what, ma olam chaser, what was the world missing? Menucha. Ba'shabbos ba'menucha. Shabbat comes, menucha comes, rest comes. Was the world missing menucha or were human beings missing menucha? Well, who was missing rest? That human beings would burn out or the world needs rest? And if the world needs rest also, number one, why? Number two, where do we see it? Where do we see the world resting on Shabbos? I know I'm asking the sixth question. I'm, I'm not afraid of asking the sixth question. The point is, when you think about the notion of Shabbos as the day of rest, it evokes a whole host of questions. What kind of rest? Why rest? Why did God rest? How is rest holy? Why is Shabbat holy? Why is the world missing rest when it seems like, yeah, human beings should rest once in a while, but the world is missing rest? What's going on here? So I want to jump straight into the Kabbalah because we have exactly 32 minutes and... You know, remember in uh, 1010 Wins, the station in New York, anybody living in New York City, right? 1010 Wins, you give us 32 minutes, we'll give you the Kabbalah. I think that was their tagline. Um, I'm pretty sure I've got this correct. So if I'm, if I'm incorrect, then uh, whatever, you'll forgive me. So 32 minutes, sorry, 31 minutes we have now for the Kabbalah. So stay with me and buckle up. And it's all about the Tzimtzum, which is one of our favorite topics here at... 
In Town Jewish Academy. We love the Tzimtzum. We cannot get enough of Tzimtzum. What is Tzimtzum and why does it sound so cool? Here we go. Tzimtzum is the act of cosmic, spiritual, divine contraction. Let me explain. In the beginning, Kabbalah explains. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we get into the Kabbalah, let me just tell you what we're doing. I'm going to share with you a Kabbalah, well, share or reiterate or, or frame a mystical concept. We're going to go through it and we're going to see how it explains perfectly what is Shabbat from a spiritual perspective. So now let's get into the concept. Kabbalah says that before the world was created, it was only God and his infinite light. And what that means in short is that it was just God and God's infinite expression, infinite expanse, taking up all the room and possible room of existence. In other words, when God is, no one else can be. Or where God is, no one else can be just because God is infinite. So give you a, a mathematical formula, right? If something, if a thing, a thing is taking up infinite amount of space, filling the infinite, filling space infinitely, well, there's no room to insert anything else because this one thing is already filling infinite swaths of space. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes? If God and God's light, you know, it's not physical light, but God's presence is taking up all the space, there's no room for anything else to be. So Kabbalah says, when God wished, decided, desired to create a world, God performed an act called the Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum means contraction. There's really multiple stages to this. I'm going to contract the concept, hey oh, see what I did there, into a singular thought. God, <laughs> I told you, eye rolls are appreciated. I love it. So, God contracted himself. God shrunk himself. Contract means kind of like to shrink, to take up less space. God, so to speak, made himself take up less space to allow for otherness creation, us, you and I, the world, the universe, to exist. So again, before Tzimtzum, there's only God everywhere, infinitely everywhere, infinite manifestation. Tzimtzum means God is now shrinking, so to speak. You'll see soon why I keep on saying so to speak. Into a more defined space to allow for space for otherness to exist. Give you an example. One of my go-to examples for this. If you studied Kabbalah with me in the past, then you've probably heard this example. Imagine you have somebody who's really dynamic, right? That walks into a room and takes over the conversation and really uh, just takes over the room. And no one else has an opinion anymore. No one else has a sense of, like this guy, titched, or you know, man, woman, whatever, this takes over the whole room. Monopolize. Monopolize, yeah, the whole, the whole space. And then imagine this person realizes, you know what, hold on one second, let's give some room for others. So decides to move to the side and let, let the party continue, let other people um, step in. That's, again, a very crude example of symptom. Now, the reason why I say it's not exactly the same thing with God is because 
with God that Simtsum is not literal, it's figurative, which we'll discuss in a moment. So it's not that literally God is shrinking, God forbid, but it's that at least on, on an appearance level, on a visible level, God is creating space for otherness to exist. If you want to think about it in different terms, this also works. In the beginning, or actually before the beginning, when it was just God, no world, no universe, nothing else, just God, the infinite light was blindingly bright. The tzimtzum is when you shrink the light, when you lessen the light, so that you can have other, and the other can be sustainable. So I want to give you an example for this. This is an example that happened recently with me. If you noticed, those of you that joined me last Wednesday and haven't seen me in a week will notice that I'm wearing new glasses. Do you guys notice that? Anybody notice that? Okay. Yes. Okay, perfect. So how did I get new glasses? I went to a glasses place and I got an eye exam and I got a new prescription and I got new glasses. So if you've ever had an eye exam, you know that part of that exam is they shine that light into your eye. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? They shine that really bright light into your eye and you know it's coming. They also puff that thing, that the little puff into your eye. You know it's coming and then when they shine that light, it's like, I feel like my eye is like, like pulsing and like it's getting a little watery. I'm like, but I can hold my eyelid open. I know I can do it. And then it's over and like, I'm like, like, all right, that's just me. Um, okay. <laughs> now, hold on. So what's happening? What's happening? There's a lot of light in, in your eye. Now, when there's a lot of light in your eye, how well can you see? When they're shining that light in your eye, how, how's, your how's your sight now? Yeah? How much can you see? Garnished. None. Nada. Nothing. You can't see. Why? Too much light. So one second, person might say, hold on, hold it. Light helps you see. You can only see when there's light. So the more light, the merrier. So how does it, how does it work that when there's a lot, too much light, then you can't see? That doesn't make any sense. It's like a paradox. It's not a paradox. It makes perfect sense. You need a balance, a balanced amount of light. Too, much, too little light, you can't see. Too much light, you also can't see. Another example. You know, the Earth, our beautiful planet, is warmed by the sun. There are rumors that lately it's been getting warmer. All right. But the Earth overall is warmed by the sun. Yeah? Fine. Is that good? Sure. It's great. Imagine we picked up the Earth. We imagine, right? And we moved it a little bit closer. We moved it right next door. Right? If warmth is good, so a lot of warmth is really good, right? Yeah, not exactly. Not exactly. Now, life would not exist too close to the sun, right? Too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. It doesn't work. Too much divine energy flowing into our space would obliterate this space from being able to exist. Does that make sense? The tzimtzum is when you cut the light, the, the divine light, to number one, create space for otherness, but also to create a sustainable flow of energy into the world so that it doesn't short circuit. One more example. 
You know how electricity is produced? It's produced in different ways. Imagine hydroelectricity. So you have at the bottom of a waterfall or inside of whatever it is, however they do that, right? Or a waterfall or like a dam or whatever it is. And they have a turbine that is moving. It's being propelled by the water. And because of that movement, it actually creates power. And the power goes to a power plant. Yeah, imagine if you somehow try to hook up your cell phone right to that source of power. Yeah, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, it has to go to the power plant and then it has to go through one transformer and another transformer and another transformer before you know it, right? It gets lessened and lessened and lessened until it goes to the street, into your home, and there's more boxes and transformers until it gets cut down to just the right amount of energy and power that when you plug in your phone, it charges it nice and smooth and nice and fast and doesn't blow it up. That's what Tzimtzum is, and that's why Tzimtzum is. Tzimtzum divine contraction is to number one, create space for the world, and number two, create a sustainable flow of energy, divine light, into the world. Because once there's space, there still needs to be something, and that's powered by God's light, by God's energy, by God's power, but it needs to be cut. Take a look at text number three. I'm going to share my screen. Now, we did a lot of Kabbalah and Tzimtzum right now. I hope this makes sense. But to solidify it and to see it inside, here we go. Text number three. I will read this. Tzimtzum. This comes from Shariyich of Emunah, chapter four, from the second part of Tanya, which is absolutely magnificent. God's power of restraint is the quality of Tzimtzum. That's how you spell it. Concealment or contraction. Whereby he withholds his great expansiveness, and prevents it from descending and being revealed to created beings. Rather than animating all of creation openly, he operates in concealment to create the impression that the created being exists independently from God. Though the created being has no independent existence, in other words, in reality, it's all part of God, nevertheless, the restraining power of the omnipotent God, which is Simpson, conceals the spiritual life force that flows from him so as not to nullify, zap, the existence of the created being. The author, Rebbe, the author of Tanya says that God creates a world which is meant to be self-identifying and self-aware, feeling itself to be in existence. And in order to do so, we have the ultimate paradox. God has to create that reality, but God has to create the reality in a way that it doesn't realize that it's being created by God. You with me? It's the ultimate magic trick. God creates a reality, pumps energy into the reality in such a way that it doesn't know that it's being pumped. The energy is coming from God. How, what, where, when? It's called Simpson, where the light is lessened to the point that it's little and it's small and you don't realize, you don't recognize the divine source. That is Simpson in a nutshell. I know we talked about three or four ideas about Simpson there. They all work together to conspire in a good way to create the universe, the world as we know it. And in fact, we see in life on this earth, we find different levels of different kingdoms of creation. I'm going to explain what I mean. Four different kingdoms of existence that each are powered in different ways by the Simpson, one lower than the next. In general, Judaism speaks of four planes, four dimensions, four kingdoms of physical beings. 
inanimate, inanimate, vegetation, animal, and human life. Four levels. Again, domain tzameach chai medaber. Domain inanimate life. In other words, rocks, minerals, anything that doesn't have visible forms of life or growth. Then the next level up is vegetation, trees, plants, etc. The next level up are animals. And then finally, the highest, human beings. That's the Jewish taxonomy of existence, four dimensions, four kingdoms, if you will, of life. Inanimate, vegetation, animals, and human beings. And Kabbalah teaches that each one is powered by God, but with varying degrees of tzimtzum, or more severe degrees of tzimtzum. The greater the tzimtzum, the greater the contraction, the less visible life you see in it. So the stone that just sits there, doesn't walk, doesn't talk, doesn't move, doesn't grow. The stone looks dead. It's alive. It's alive. Even rock has soul, right? A rock has soul. So it's alive, but it doesn't look alive. That means that Simpson really got to it. It's really diminished light. Vegetation grows. You could see some sort of forms of life. There's growth. It's blossoming from small to big. Ah, it's alive. You see a little bit of life force. Animals even more and human beings even more with creative intelligence and communication, etc. So here's the point. Actually, before I tell you, before I wrap up the point, let's share this text with you and let's read this inside. Um, Let's ask David. David Lazan, please read text number four, The Diffusion. The diffusion of God's light, which is the life force of creation, is not equal in all creative things, in all creative beings, in the balance of its concealment and revelation. His physical and invisible and inanimate bodies are just stones and soil. The light is most restricted. The light force is so minimal that it can't even grow. By contrast, the divine light and plant life is less restricted. Generally speaking, there are four categories. The inanimate, the botanical, the animal, and the human. The diffusion of divine light and life force in the inanimate and plant life can't be compared to the light and life force in the animal or in the human. In other words, the light that the light and life force that flows down into a rock, a stone, soil, something that is inanimate, is a much more reduced form of divine life, divine light and life force than that which flows into the human being, which is why it doesn't move, it appears lower, etc. So what's the point? The point is that the tzimtzum, this divine contraction, is at the core. It's at the heart of existence. We don't exist without a tzimtzum. But you know what the negative byproduct of tzimtzum is? It's that we don't recognize, we don't see God. Because it's, uh, it's, the light is so diminished, it's so obscured, that yeah, we're here and we can move and we can talk and we can think. All right, we have all that stuff, but we don't really recognize the source naturally. Is there ever a moment in time where that symptom is reduced? In other words, hold on, hold on. Let me say that a little bit clear, more clearly. Is there perhaps at any point in time, can God, does God ever relax the strict 
constriction of the light so as to allow us to see a little bit more. Does God, right, imagine the big light and it's being squeezed into only a drop of light coming through the other end to us? Does God ever relax that and open it up a little bit more? You know what the answer is? Yes. You know when? Shabbos. You know what day of rest means? God is resting from? Tzimtzum. Boom. That's the big idea of tonight's class. What is Shabbat? What happens on Shabbat? What happens on the... Uh, we'll talk about why it's holy in a second. What happens on Shabbat? It's a relaxing. It's a resting. It's a not full cessation because we're still here. But it's a reduction, if you will, in the degree to which the light is constrained. The degree to which God is obscured, that is lessened. Not the light is lessened, the degree to which it's lessened is lessened on Shabbat, which means the light opens up. The light, simply speaking, is more available. Or even more simply speaking, God is more available on Shabbat. Doesn't mean that automatically you're going to have an epiphany, but it's more accessible. You can tap into it. The energy, there's more energy and light and life force in the air. It's ready to go. The, the waves are there. The energy, the light is there. You just need to tune into it and capture it. Where do we see this? I'm going to read this text. It is absolutely gorgeous. This text is magnificent. This is text number five. Resting from Tzimtzum. You can see where we're going with this. This comes from one of the greatest mystical discourses ever. Tough Reish Samachvav. Samachvav. From the discourses of 5766, 1906, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, wrote over the course of a long period of time um, a series of mystical discourses that are absolutely mind-blowing. Here is what he writes on page 22. The concept of divine rest, Shabbos, Shabbat, is to refrain from tzimtzum, from concealment, as it is written, and this is what it says in the Torah, that God Elohim completed on the seventh day. This is what we say every Friday night in the Kiddush. Vayechal Elohim bayom hashvi'i. And God Elohim completed, vayechal, completed, bayom hashvi'i on the seventh day comes along Kabbalah and says Elohim is the name of God that represents God's capacity for restraint and concealment. In other words, Elohim is synonymous with tzimtzum, with this constriction, with this contraction that we're speaking of. So, and on Shabbat, the tzimtzum, Elohim, tzimtzum, implied by the name Elohim, expired. Vayichal can mean conclude, and it can also mean expire. Vayichal Elohim means Elohim expired. The tzimtzum ceased. And God rested from the act of tzimtzum. What does that mean in English? It means that instead of lessening, diminishing, squeezing the light to the point that it's unrecognizable on the other side, that is relaxed on Shabbat. That's what God did on that very first Shabbat of existence. That very first seventh day. Day seven, that's what God did. God completed. God stopped the tzimtzum, Vayichal Elohim, Elohim ceased by Yom HaShvi on that seventh day. Something similar as it happened day one, or that first time, something similar occurs every week on Shabbat. On this day, for all time, God rests 
from the act of concealment, and the divine light is revealed without the veil of tzimtzum, making us aware that we are standing before the king, or at least giving us the possibility to recognize a higher truth in a much easier way than it is during the week. This is what it means when we talk about in Jewish literature, that on Shabbat there is a neshama yitera, extra soul. It says that on Shabbat we have extra soul. What does that mean, extra soul? An extra ability to perceive godliness. Take a look what the Talmud says. The Talmud says, text number six, um, let's see, let's ask um, Steve. Steve, please read text number six from the Talmud. Okay. An additional measure of soul is given to us on Friday afternoon and is taken from us on Saturday night. This is derived from the verse on the seventh day, Shavat Vayin Afash. He rested and was refreshed. The Hebrew words form an abbreviation for Kavan Sheshavat Ve Avda Nefesh. One Shabbat ends, woe, our additional soul is lost. Thank you, thank you. Uh, that wasn't an easy one, but you pulled it off uh, perfectly. So the Heb, the original verse says, God rested and was refreshed. The Talmud says, don't read it like that, or at least it has a deeper meaning, which is, once Shabbat is over, once you've rested, in other words, once Saturday night comes, whoa, like, oh no, the soul, the extra soul is gone. There's an additional soul or additional soul that we have on Shabbat. And after Shabbat, it is gone. That is why in the Havdalah ceremony of Saturday night, we smell beautiful spices to refresh the soul, to invigorate the soul after it's lost this extra soul. Paul, please jump in and read text number seven. Our sages instituted the ritual of smelling spices at the end of Shabbat to revive the soul, which is melancholy at this time over the departure of the additional soul. We settle the soul and cheer it with a pleasing fragrance. Thank you. What does it mean that we have additional soul? It means that there's an additional spiritual energy in the air that we're capable of tapping into. We have, additional, we have an additional spiritual boost. Why and how? Because, as we've learned tonight, that symptom, which typically really reduces the divine energy and light and life force that comes into this world and into our beings to the point where it's basically, basically, just, you can't even, you can't even notice it. It's unnoticeable almost. I mean, you can, we know that we're alive, but we don't see God. That is opened up. There is more capacity to connect with God on Shabbat, on that very first Shabbat in history. Vayichal Elokim. Elokim was canceled. Tzimtzum, listen, today it's all about being canceled. God canceled the Tzimtzum on Shabbat. And every week, henceforth, or thenceforth, I'm just making new words, right? From that time on, every seventh day, every Shabbat, God cancels the tzimtzum. What a great thing to cancel. And thus, we have more soul. We have additional spiritual energy. It's in the air, and we have that boost. And therefore, when Shabbat ends, and the tzimtzum kicks in once again, right? 
You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of bandwidth. Remember back in the day, before like Google Fiber and like gigabit internet, you were on dial-up, right? Imagine if you were able to get like high-speed internet for like a day, you'll be like, oh my gosh, let me download all my stuff in this day. And then boom, down comes the hammer and you're back to dial up, right? And you're like, oh, it's terrible. But at least you have smelling spices to, uh, to placate your soul, to revive your soul. That's what's going on, right? God typically hides. On Shabbat, the restrictions are removed. It's like olive oil with that thing and you can't pour it because it's so limited. You crack off the top, then it comes back on. You're like, oh, let me sp smell some cloves and call it a night. That's what's going on every Saturday night with the Havdalah ceremony. This explains a beautiful statement of our sages in the Midrash. Text number eight. I'm going to read this one. Take a look at this. A person's face is incomparably more radiant on Shabbat than the rest of the week. Why? Because there's more soul, there's more divine energy in the world. The face itself changes. The face itself, the countenance changes. There's a beautiful story here, text number nine, from the Rav, or about the Rav, Rabbi Soloveitchik. I'm going to read this quickly. In Warsaw, we, the Soloveitchik family, live three houses away from the Mojitzer Shtibel. Generally, I would go to the Majlis or Shtibol for the Suda Shlishit, the third meal of the Shabbat, the af Saturday afternoon toward evening. They would sing all the Zemir, the songs for the Suda Shlishit, the third meal. Poor Jews, in other words, like literally, like um, those that didn't have a lot of money, would be seated around the table at the Shtibol. I knew these Jews well and I constantly spoke with them. They were sincerely pious Jews who willingly sacrificed for their spiritual commitments. I once spoke with one of them who was frail and short. He constantly carried heavy metal pieces, and I wondered where he got the physical strength to support this weight. His load was always tied around him with a thick cord, and he resembled a coolie. On the Sabbath, I saw this very Jew, and I did not recognize him. He came over to me in his tapered kapata. That's that long um, black coat. Looks like I'm conducting a symphony that many uh, Hasidic Jews wear including Chabad. It was covered with endless patches, and even the patches had patches. Yet his face shone with the joy of the Sabbath. I recognized in a tangible fashion that a person's Sabbath countenance is totally different than his weekday appearance again. For the Jew in the Shtibol, who had nothing, he had Shabbat, and he was tuned into Shabbat. And his face would change on Shabbat because he was tuned into the spiritual energy. And this explains the most incredible law in Jewish law. Take a look at text 10a. Let me give you some background. This, we're talking now about a wedding and the seven days of celebration after a wedding known as Sheva Brachot or the seven, well, Sheva Brachot really means the seven blessings, but you do seven blessings at a meal for seven days following the wedding ceremony. And the law is that if you want to do it, you want to have this little ceremony with the blessings, there has to be a panim chadashot at that, at, that, um, at that meal, a new face. There has to be a new guest that wasn't at the wedding or wasn't at the previous celebrations. You have to have some new people at the celebration, fresh faces. 
So you invite someone who wasn't celebrating before because otherwise it's, yeah, we did this, we, we did this yesterday. Uh, we, we all celebrated yesterday. So it's not a joy until there's someone new there and then you can do the blessings again. So every day of those seven days, you invite, make sure to invite at least one new person to celebrate. Take a look at the following law. This will blow you away. Take a look. Text 10a from the Talmud. We chant the blessings of the bridegroom in the presence of 10 men for seven days. Sheva Brachot. Rabbi Yehuda said, only if a new face arrives. That's what I just told you. Only if there's a new guest. Panim Chadashot. Right there. New face. 10b, Tosvot. The commentary says, Shabbat is also considered a new face. Look at that. If it's on Shabbat, if this celebration, right, when it's on Shabbat, you don't need a new guest. Why? Because Shabbat is also a new face. What does that mean? Shabbat's a person? Oh, we don't have a new guest, but we have Shabbat. Welcome, Shabbat. Who's Shabbat? What is this, a game? Is it a joke? What is it? The Rebbe explains magnificently in text 10c. On Shabbat, there is no need for a new face. For a Jew's face is incomparably more radiant on Shabbat than during the week, as we just said. Our radiance renews on Shabbat and confers upon us the status of a new face. It's not that Shabbat has the new face. Shabbat gives us a new face. So yeah, we saw everybody around the table yesterday, but on Shabbat... Everyone looks different. Everyone is more radiant. We're transformed spiritually. Why? Because the block has been blocked. The tzimtzum has been canceled on Shabbat. And because of that, there's more light in the world and more radiance in our faces. And it's a beautiful time. And now we can understand why on Shabbat we don't just take a rest. I asked before, day of rest, are you kidding me? There's so much to do. Exactly. Because it's not a day of rest from work. It's a day of rest of tzimtzum, of spiritual constriction. It's a day of spiritual exalting. It's a day to exalt. It's a day to, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a day to just celebrate the spirit the, the divine energy that's in the world, that's always in the world, but it's always hidden. On this day, it's less hidden. So what are you going to do on this day? Go to shul and pray and eat a good meal with friends and family and share words of Torah. And that's what the day is about. It's not about not working. That, it's also about not working. But not working is because working is about a mundane activity. Mundane activity, you have one day where the filter is off. You have one day in which the full energy is flowing into the world. And we're going to work on that day. Are you kidding me? You know what potential is flowing into the world on this day? This is a day for spiritual plugging in. It's a day to exalt and to celebrate and to tap into the energy. This is what text 11 says as we, as we come to the, to, the, to the grand finale. Take a look at this beautiful text. The Rebbe says, these are the two poles, the two opposites that are expected of a Jew. During the six days when the Torah mandates that we concern ourselves with our material body, working as a mitzvah. In other words, the divine light is cut, right? It's limited. Go to work. Nevertheless, on Shabbat and Jewish holidays, when the soul is more radiant, as we've been saying today, we must transcend our body, its concerns and its nature. It is self-understood that work is out of the question during these days. You don't even need a prohibition. You need, a, uh, you, you need rules and regulations. You have treasures in front of you. 
You're going to go, you're going to work. You have spiritual energy at your fingertips. That's inaccessible six days a week. You have one day access, a one day pass. You're not going to jump in. Of course you're going to jump in. This is what the meaning of rest is on Shabbat. Resting on Shabbat, the Rebbe says, doesn't mean the absence of work. Not a, we do work. We work spiritually. Not only do we work to serve God on Shabbat, but our work is of a higher order. It's even more difficult work, on a sense. We must therefore conclude that resting on Shabbat means to work in a manner that is restful and delightful. That is to say, it's not considered laborious at all because it is a pleasure, spiritual pleasure, to engage in such work. A simple example, and listen to this analogy, this will blow you away. A simple example about tapping into the energy of Shabbat. If we were given permission to gather as many gems and diamonds as we could, we would spare no effort in carrying the heaviest load that we could possibly lift. Though this would entail strain, toil, and perspiration, it would not be considered strenuous or burdensome. On the contrary, the heavier the load, the more delighted we would be. And I cannot say it any better than that, than the Rebbe's analogy right here. Somebody said, I give you access one day a week to the vault. You can take whatever you want from the treasure house. What, you're going to say, I'm tired. Nah, I'm tired. Nah, I want to nap today. Napping? Tired? I got to go to work? Are you kidding me? You have treasures right here. There's treasures in front of you, spiritual treasures. The greatest light is accessible. The light that's typically cut that's typically diminished, shrouded in a concealment, is available. And we're not going to jump in? Of course we are. My friends, this is the soul of Shabbat, and we've answered all the questions. Why did God rest? Did God get tired? Of course not. Rest doesn't mean rest from working. Rest means resting by Echal Elokim, it says. It says, Elokim rested or ceased. The tzimtzum rested on Shabbat. That's what it means that God rested. Yeah? Why is it holy? Why is rest holy? Vacations aren't holy automatically. Resting from cutting the light means opening the light, and now it's a holy day. Holy day means that you have access to holiness because the tzimtzum, are you with me on what I'm saying? Yes? Yeah? The tzimtzum, the constriction, is opened. That's what rest means. Rest means... No tzimtzum, no contraction, full flow, full flow of the energy, of the divine energy. That's a holy day. That's why we rest also. We don't rest. We rest from the physical distractions and we work on a higher level to connect to what's beautiful. I'm going to end with this story. A story that I love. The story takes place with Mr. Sammy Rohr. You may recognize, recognize the last name Rohr. Mr. George Rohr is one of the principal benefactors and patrons of the JLI, the Jewish Learning Institute, that creates the most incredible curriculum, the six-week um, JLI course that we're doing now, that we've done you know, over the years, created by JLI. Torah studies also created by JLI. So George Rohr's father, Sammy Rohr, also just a tremendous lover of the Jewish people and Torah, so he tells the story, he's no longer with us, but he told the story that after the war, he was in, how do you pronounce it? Bas Basel, Switzerland? Basel? 
something like that, Switzerland. He was in uh, post-war, you know, that's, that's, where he was, that's where he was right after the war. And he got, there was a synagogue and a rabbi nearby, and the rabbi invited him to join the 7 a.m., Shabbat morning, 7 a.m. class, exploring the book of Psalms. He says, Rabbi, I appreciate the invitation, but it's my one day off from work, right? I want to sleep in a little bit, 7 a.m.? He says, I've only one day a week to sleep, and you want to come, and you want me to come and learn. Without skipping a beat, the rabbi says to him, you have one day a week to learn, and you want to sleep? My friends, this is what Shabbat is. It's the one day a week that we have to connect to plug in, not just because we have more time, but because on a cosmic level, the dynamic is radically different. On a cosmic level, the apertures are open, the light is pouring in, and it's accessible. And we have additional soulful energy to tap into it. The light is available, our souls are ready to go. All it needs is for us to tune out the distractions and plug in. May this Shabbat truly be an inspirational Shabbat. May we tap into the energy. May we create a beautiful connection for ourselves, our family, our communities, and the world itself. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope you enjoyed the class. All right. A few quick announcements. Tomorrow night is a very special night because tomorrow night is the 33rd, begins the 33rd day of the Omer, which is called Lag Ba'omer, which is the anniversary of the passing of the great mystic, the, the author of Zohar, one of the primary works of Kabbalah. His name was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Traditionally, this day is marked by celebration, bonfires, music, and mystical storytelling. We are going to be doing a Zoom version of this, minus the bonfire. Maybe we'll put bonfire backgrounds on our Zoom screens. But our community in Atlanta is joining up with the community in Montreal to have an evening of unity and celebration in honor of Lagba Omer. It's live on Mom. You can join from Pittsburgh also. Don't worry, we're not being exclusive like that. But it also includes, and Karen, you can, enjoy, you can join from Maine. It's okay. We're not being that exclusive either. Laurel, it's open to you as well. I'm just saying, right? Every, everyone who's out of town, don't worry. It's, it's available. Atlanta, Montreal, et al., et cetera, are joining tomorrow night, 8 p.m., for live music, inspiration, storytelling, and spirituality. It's going to be an absolute blast. Um, I feel like I want to share the information with you. Let me see if I can do that. Give me a moment. Um, let me see how I can do that. Lag Omer. Hold on. Where are we here? Okay, hold on. Give me a moment. This is going to happen. Okay, let's see if this works. I'm hoping this works. Doesn't always work. Do you guys see that? Did it show up? Did it work? Ah, oh, Givaldic. Okay, that means fantastic. Here we go. 
Um, Atlanta, Montreal, Unite for Lagba Omer, Thursday, April 29th, 8 p.m., Montreal community, together with the Atlanta community for Night of Unity, musical accompaniment, Zoom or Facebook Live, but do the Zoom. Here we go, Zoom ID, 770-770-6085. My friends, it doesn't get more Chabad friendly than that Zoom, Zoom code right there. 770-770-6085. I sent out an email today, so, and, and in that email, I don't know if everyone here gets my emails, but if you did get the email, you have the direct link. If you didn't, I'm actually gonna drop it in the chat and I encourage you to copy that and paste it on your computer somewhere, put it in a browser window or put it in a, in a, in a note somewhere so that you have it. Let me first stop share so that I can actually navigate on my computer and get you the link. Give me a moment here. I'm just gonna pull it up from my Hold on, let's find this. All right, give me a second here. This is a work in progress. Um, okay, here we go. Okay, it's about to go in the chat. Three, two, one. Hold on, boom. Okay, everyone got that? The webzoom.us, blah, blah, blah. That's a direct link. So. Copy that link, put it on your computer. Tomorrow night, 8 p.m., join us live. Bonfires, maybe, no promises. I don't know how we're gonna pull that off. Music, storytelling, inspiration, spirituality, Lagba Omer from the comfort of your home. Join us, log in, and oh, log in for Lag. We should do something with that. Only it's, uh, I, I know I'm, I'm the only one that gets excited about these things. Anyway, log in, log on for Lagba Omer right there. That's the code 770-770-6085 on Zoom tomorrow night at 8 p.m. So for those of you that usually join me for Tanya study Thursday nights, don't go to that Zoom room. Go to this one because we'll have some mystical inspiration tomorrow night as well. All right, again, thank you for joining me tonight. I hope you have a wonderful evening. See you tomorrow night. I hope you have a wonderful Shabbat. And remember, no symptom, no problem. We'll see you. Have a good night. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Good night. Pleasure. See you guys.